Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to be speaking about C. difficile infection in patients with IBD. Uh, the gentleman standing right next to me, however, Dr. Binion, has done much of the work in this area. I'll be referencing many of his, uh, much of his work. So we know, that Crohn, uh, we know that CDI, or C. difficile infection, is the most common gastrointestinal infection in patients with IBD. And we also know that infection-related hospitalizations are associated with an increased mortality in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. This is a very big problem for our patients with IBD. Let's go over some of the epidemiology of CDI in patients with IBD. So this is a one study that looked at two different uh, periods of time at one specific hospital. And if we kind of concentrate on part A of this slide, in the light color are the total number of C. diff patients admitted to the hospital between 2000 and 2005. If you look at the black box, that's the number of patients with IBD who were admitted to the hospital. So you can see over this period of time, the IBD patients accounted for a higher percentage of individuals admitted to the hospital with CDI, 16%. In, in part B, you can see the risk of developing or the, the incidence or prevalence of having uh, CDI in patients, and the box on top with the triangles is UC. So clearly we see more CDI infections in patients with UC, and over time this has increased as well. This is another study looking at uh, rates of CDI among hospitalized IBD patients compared to non-IBD patients, and again, 1998 to 2004, showing this significant increase. While the total number of hospitalized patients was relatively flat, the IBD patients were clearly going up. So some more epidemiology. Patients with UC, as I showed you on the earlier slides, are disproportionately affected compared to those patients with CD. Reported incidence of 1.0 to 7.7% in CD and 2.8 to 11.1% in patients with UC. The incidence of symptomatic CDI is higher in the IBD patient, again, population has been increasing. One of the problems that we will encounter in taking care of IBD patients and we're probably going to address is that there's a higher prevalence of asymptomatic C. diff carriage in patients with IBD. 8.2% in one study looking at IBD patients compared to 1% in non-IBD patients. And this can create an issue for us when patients who are colonized with C. diff are admitted to the hospital and we're trying to decide what to do, treat their C. diff or escalate their medical therapy. I have to point out that healthcare exposure remains the perhaps most significant risk factor for C. difficile isolation in our patients. They come to see us in the office, they come to the endoscopy suite, and perhaps this exposure is the reason why our patients are seeing more, our patients are developing more C. diff. And as I showed you earlier, patients with IBD are at increased risk of adverse outcomes from CDI, which can also impact on the management of their underlying IBD. So population, this is one population-based retrospective study that Dr. Binion did when he was in Wisconsin, I believe. It looked at discharge diagnoses in 2003, and they had several different cohorts, and they were looking at the outcome of in-hospital mortality. And patients either had CDI and IBD, CDI alone, or just IBD patients admitted to the hospital. And compared to non-IBD CDI patients, so patients who had CDI and IBD had a two-fold greater mortality, were six times more likely to undergo bowel surgery, a three times longer length of stay, three times more likely to need TPN, and more likely to require blood transfusions. 
So looking at this in another graph, you can see this is CDI and IBD mortality and morbidity. It's 0.5% for patients with IBD alone. In, in non-IBD patients with CDAD alone, you can see it's 3.7%, but the combination of CDI and IBD is a very bad combination in terms of significant morbidity and mortality. So let's look at some of the pathophysiology of CDI in patients with IBD. So in IBD, we know that the colonic dysbiosis probably plays a role in developing IBD and perpetuating the inflammatory response. So loss of resistance to bacterial colonization is, is presumed to be one of the reasons why you have CDI infection. Uh, in the absence of developing antibiotics, and we'll show you on a subsequent slide, antibiotic exposure is not necessarily a risk factor for our patients with IBD. And that same colonic dysbiosis that increases the risk of developing CDI is associated with the re high recurrence rate of disease uh, after initial successful treatment. So on the right hand of the slide, <coughs> we'll look at patients without uh, IBD. So they basically tend to be older. They're more likely to have antibiotic exposure, more likely to come in the hospital without diarrhea and then develop diarrhea in the hospital after a surgical procedure, for example, and then they're diagnosed with C. diff infection. And then in the old days, meaning when I was just training, if someone had mild C. diff and, and, and they were non-IBD, we often just stopped the antibiotics and that's all we had to do. We didn't have to treat patients. So in the absence of an ongoing antibiotic exposure, these patients, non-IBD patients, have a lower recurrence uh, rate. But on the left side of the slide, you can see patients with IBD. They tend to be younger. Antibiotic exposure is less likely. As I mentioned, more often community onset or healthcare-associated onset, meaning they've uh, acquired C. diff from seeing you in the office or in the endoscopy suite. They develop CDI infection or CDI, and then you can see they have persistent dysbiosis that's associated with this higher recurrence than in non-IBD patients. So how do we make a diagnosis of uh, CDI in patients with IBD? I'm going to show you the ACG and the AGA uh, guidelines. So the ACG basically ambulatory patients with IBD who develop diarrhea in the setting of previously quiescent disease in the absence of risk factors such as recent hospitalization or antibiotic use should nonetheless be tested for CDI. We do not need coming to the hospital or exposure to antibiotics. And then obviously all patients who are coming to see you in the office with the flare or being hospitalized should be tested for CDI. And this is quite similar to the AGA recommendations. We should test patients for, who are presenting with a flare for underlying, uh, underlying inflammatory bowel disease for C. diff infection. And again, should screen for recurrent CDI if diarrhea or other symptoms of colitis persist um, after a successful treatment for CDI if they have recurrent symptoms. So the diagnosis of CDI has changed over time. This comes from a review in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology, and this is one of, this is their set of recommendations. And you really do need to know what is being done in your hospital, because many hospitals have their own specific um, algorithm. But this particular group suggested a two-step procedure. Uh, again, you always test it on unformed stool that has a high sensitivity and specificity. And the first step would be to do this test for GDH using an enzyme immunoassay, and that's highly sensitive for C. diff but not specific. And if that test is positive, then you go on and you do additional testing 
to confirm a diagnosis of CDI. And in situations where you have GDH positive and toxin negative, you can consider doing a nucleic acid test. So this is one potential scenario. You basically do the EIA for GDH and toxin. And over on the far left, if you're GDH positive, toxin positive, you certainly have CDI infection. If on the other hand, you're GDH negative and toxin negative, then CDI is not diagnosed. Now, I'm going to show you in subsequent slides, I think one of the concerns that we have is the overdiagnosis of CDI in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Now, if your patient is GDH positive and toxin negative, then you would do the PCR to try to make a definitive diagnosis. And if the PCR detects toxin, then that's a person who has true CDI infection. So this is a very interesting paper that was published in uh, JAMA in 2015. I need to point out that this did not include patients with IBD. It was 1,416 hospitalized adults were tested for C. diff. This is 72 hours or longer after admission during this time period. And then what they did was they characterized patients as toxin-positive, PCR-positive, toxin-negative, PCR-positive, and toxin-negative, PCR-negative. And these were the outcomes that they looked at, duration of diarrhea during follow-up, rate of CDI-associated complications, and CDI-related death within 30 days. So what did they find? Among hospitalized patients with suspected CDI, virtually all of the patients who had complications occurred in patients who were toxin immunoassay test positive. So if your only assay was the PCR, as being positive, and they had a negative EIA for toxin, that subgroup of patients had outcomes that were comparable to the non-CDI patients. So by using PCR, although we all agree, dropping that stool sample off at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I think we run the, um, the PCR three times a day in our hospital, we have the results back in three hours, and it allows us to act quickly when using a nucleic acid test, especially in patients with IBD, one of the concerns that we have is that we're detecting perhaps that 8% of individuals that have uh, colonization as opposed to true infection. And they concluded that exclusive reliance on molecular tests for CDI diagnosis without tests for toxins may result in over-diagnosis, uh, over-treatment, and therefore, uh, obviously, increase health care costs. So when we see a patient who has a positive uh, CDI, a positive C. diff test, and they have IBD, the question is, do they have active CDI, active IBD, or both? So again, we have already said that patients with IBD have higher rates of CDI. IBD patients, again, have this higher rate of asymptomatic colonization. If you're looking for pseudomembranes to make a diagnosis of, IB, of C. diff in patients undergoing a flexible sigmoidoscopy on day one of their hospitalization for a flare of their ulcerative colitis, don't expect to see them. They're present in less than 13% of individuals. Again, CDI as well as IBD have similar symptoms. These two diseases are not mutually exclusive, and one, namely the CDI, can trigger a flare and then complicate the subsequent course. So how might you manage this? This comes from the ACG. Again, in patients with IBD, they recommend that ongoing immunosuppressive medications can be maintained in patients with CDI, but they were hesitant to escalate immunosuppression uh, in the absence of, of untreated CDI. So 
basically you initiate treatment, you'll see this on the next slide, and then after X number of days, and we can talk in the panel how long you should wait, you should then escalate therapy if the patient isn't responding. And don't forget that patients with ileostomy and pouches can develop CDI. Now, what did the AGA say? Uh, clinicians may postpone escalation of steroids and other immunosuppressive agents during an acute CDI until therapy for CDI has been initiated. The question is, how long do you wait? But they really point out that the decision to withhold or continue immunosuppression in IBD patients with CDI should be individualized because there was insufficient evidence, at least robust literature evidence, on which to develop firm recommendations. So potentially this is what happens. You have your patient with IBD, and he, he or she's admitted to the hospital. You, um, you basically, they're on, let's say, an anti-TNF or any particular immunosuppressive agent. You test for a C. diff toxin, and if the C. diff toxin is positive, you then start appropriate therapy uh, for the CDI. And then in this algorithm, they recommended waiting 48 hours. If your patient responds and their symptoms are getting better, then hypothetically their problem is CDI, and then you don't have to escalate their medical therapy, and you treat them with a course of appropriate therapy for their CDI. If, on the other hand, after 48 hours there's no response, then you have to think that whether the CDI is playing a role, is a precipitant, or is an innocent bystander, you do need to escalate. And one of the biggest errors that I've seen in my referral practice are patients admitted to the hospital with an ulcerative colitis flare, a positive C. diff toxin, and the, and the outside hospital treats them for five, six, seven days with, let's say, vancomycin. The patient isn't improving, and then they're ultimately transferred with severe disease. I think waiting more than 48 hours, and we can hear from other members of the panel, at 48 hours, if your patient's not getting significantly better, you do need to escalate their medical therapy. Again, uh, you know, I think what they're doing now in my hospital is they have like secret observers to make sure that when you walk in the room that you truly do wash your hands. This is a, a major issue. This is reported in Massachusetts on the various hospital sites, rates of CD, CDI in, in, in the specific hospital. This is a big issue and so you do need as clinicians to make sure that you follow the appropriate control measures to uh, lower the risk of developing, uh, have your patients develop CDI. So some clinical pearls, C. diff colonization and infection is common with patients with IBD, again, ulcerative colitis more than Crohn's disease. CDI is associated with worse outcomes, including mortality in patients with IBD, especially in hospitalized patients. Again, diagnosis is made either by two-step assays, checking for GDH and toxin, or by PCR. But again, remember that the PCR, given its amazing sensitivity may not be able to allow you to distinguish colonization from infection. And there are a number of different uh, ongoing studies that are looking at something called cycle time, which is the amount of time the solution or the stool is diluted before you get a positive PCR to try to figure out if this could be colonization or a true infection. Highly sensitive PCR assays may result in the overdiagnosis of CDI and IBD patients. And again, do not forget to treat the underlying inflammatory bowel disease in patients who are started on therapy for CDI if they do not have a response. And again, we tend to use 48 hours before we um, initiate an, an escalation of medical therapy. Uh, thank you very much.